0: And welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff, and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I'm talking to Professor Suzanne Hagen about her research into biofeedback devices and their effectiveness in treating urinary incontinence in women. Suzanne, thank you very much for joining me on today's episode.
1: No problem. Nice to speak to
0: you, Craig. Before we drill down into discussing your research, I think it's worthwhile talking about the issue of urinary incontinence in women. What exactly do we mean by that term? So
1: the definition of urinary incontinence is really the um, involuntary loss of urine. So it's urine leakage when you don't mean to leak urine, essentially. And it's a very common problem for women. Um, one in three women experience the problem. And it can range from... Uh, a very sort of light, mild problem to a very severe problem. And obviously, um, treatment then follows on from how severe it is and how much bother that it's causing the woman.
0: Can you tell me about some of the current treatments for urinary incontinence?
1: The main treatments really are conservative methods like pelvic floor muscle exercises, pharmacological treatments, uh, so uh, drug medication that um, can be taken to help reduce the severity of the leakage. And finally, surgery really, um, an option usually using a, a sling procedure, which helps alter the, the anatomy of the urethra and, and helps to stop the um, involuntary leakage.
0: How effective are these treatments?
1: Surgery can be uh, very effective, obviously it's quite an invasive uh, procedure and it can have the complications um, and you'll have heard in the press recently, complications associated with the use of mesh in that type of surgery um, can be a big problem, but it can be um, highly effective. The drugs, I think similarly, um, high levels of, of effectiveness but also quite high levels of side effects can come into play there. Pelvic floor muscle exercises, which I suppose we're talking mainly about today, Um, again, highly effective um, with about 40% of women experiencing cure and 60% odd getting improvement from doing these exercises for the problem.
0: So tell me about these exercises. What exactly do they involve?
1: So um, the pelvic floor muscles really are like a sling that um, go from the front to the back, if you like, um, and support the, the organs in the pel- in the pelvis. And like any other muscle, you can exercise and, un- and strengthen them. So really, the exercises are about contracting those muscles in order to improve their strength and their function uh, so they can do the job that they're supposed to do, which is um, hold all the, the pelvic organs in place and let the the front and back passages essentially do their job of keeping you continent.
0: Your research looked at the effectiveness of biofeedback devices. What exactly is a biofeedback device?
1: The um, idea of biofeedback in general is about giving a person, the patient, um, information uh, visually or in in an auditory fashion about something that they, a process which um, you can't actually normally see. So in the case of a pelvic floor, exercises the woman can't see when she's contracting her pelvic floor muscles, obviously something is happening happening internally. But by using a biofeedback device which uh, involves uh, inserting a probe internally that probe um, can detect the electrical electrical activity okay. that's generated when the woman contracts their pelvic floor muscles. So that information is then fed back to a, a screen so it can be represented to the woman and to the clinician who's treating the woman showing the activity of the muscles. It essentially lets you see visually what's happening inside. And the hypothesis is that uh, by seeing that uh, muscle working, that you can effectively do the exercises correctly. Okay. And you can be motivated to continue to do the exercise. You can see how much better you're doing as you strengthen the muscles and you can see that, that strengthening's occurring. And hopefully, obviously, then your, your problem, your incontinence will be more effectively treated.
0: How much do these devices cost?
1: Quite a range of... of Costs really from sort of a hundred pound mark up to about five hundred pound, depending on how advanced they are. There's much more um, technology coming into the devices these days with Bluetooth and so on. So um, they can be quite expensive. Um, the ones that you can buy online would be in that sort of range. The NHS sometimes would buy more expensive, large type devices. Uh, which are more expensive, sorry, and the smaller handheld devices which women are more likely to buy themselves are are slightly, um, slightly cheaper.
0: So tell me about your research into looking at whether or not these devices can treat urinary incontinence in women. How did you carry out the study?
1: It really originated from the fact that there was a sort of contradictory evidence in the literature about whether these devices worked or not um, some studies were suggesting they did and others didn't. So the um, Department of Health in England commissioned the research to find out more definitively what the evidence was so that we would know whether these devices could be recommended or not. So we carried out a trial including 23 centres across the UK, so sites in Scotland and England, and uh, centres recruited total 600 women who had urinary incontinence. And the women were then randomly allocated to be in one of two groups. The first group, the women received pelvic floor muscle uh, exercises with a nurse or a therapist over six appointments and were taught how to do the pelvic floor exercises. And in the second group, the women had those same six appointments, but in addition they used the biofeedback device during those appointments and they were also given a device to take home to use when they were exercising their muscles at home. So that was the two groups and the, and the difference as you can tell was that the second group had the access to biofeedback and we wanted therefore to see whether that additional biofeedback made a difference in the long term. So we followed up the women for two years and at the end of those two years we compared their outcomes
0: yeah, tell me about the, the findings from the study.
1: Quite clear results really across all the different outcomes that we measured that there was no difference between the yeah. two women at that time point at two years. The main outcome we were interested in obviously was how severe their urinary incontinence was. And what we found was both both groups had improved significantly because obviously both groups had pelvic floor muscle training. Yeah. But the group who had the biofeedback were no different. They had no additional benefit in terms of being... Um, less incontinent.
0: Were you, were you surprised to find that?
1: I think we we were. I think we were in that we had hypothesized that the, the extra motivation that women would have had from using the devices would have made them exercise more, would have encouraged them, and obviously the more exercise you do then the better the outcome should be. So yeah, in that way we were we were quite surprised. We did some qualitative work all the way through the study, which interviewed women um, about how they were experiencing the, the, the treatments and that I think we didn't know the results of that work as we were going through the trial that was kept separate, but um, they really highlighted that um, there wasn't any difference. Women weren't, weren't really feeling a benefit.
0: So what are your recommendations from your conclusions?
1: So it is it, really, I suppose, to the the NHS and to people who spend money, invest in in treatments, to say that pelvic floor muscle training is highly effective, but really we don't recommend that um, routinely women need to be given feedback along with that treatment. So uh, a strong program of pelvic floor muscle training is effective on its own, and investment in in the devices is not really
0: needed. Instead of spending that money on the devices, is there any areas that NHS should be spending the money instead to treat urinary incontinence? The specialist
1: therapists, the nurses and the physiotherapists who deliver the pelvic floor muscle training are very thin on the ground. These services are not available um, widely everywhere. Uh, It's quite difficult to sometimes get a specialist referral so investing in in more of that resource I think would be would be a benefit because it is effective and um, you know, women can do very well and have good improvement and even cure with that type of treatment.
0: On this study Suzanne you work with a large number of partners you work with the universities of Stirling, Aberdeen, Edinburgh, Exeter and Otago in New Zealand as well as the NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde and the NHS Ayrshire and Arran. Why do you have to work with so many partners on this?
1: Every every person on the team is is really needed. Um, I think when it's such a large trial and there are, they need to work with so many centres, you need to have so many uh, collaborators on board from the NHS, that's really, really important. Uh, It's a very large, um, randomised control trial, which has got to be very rigorous in its methods. So we have a clinical trials unit in Aberdeen that we work with very often. So Aberdeen are involved there. I, I mentioned the qualitative study, that was a, a huge piece of work that went alongside the trial where women were interviewed at several time points over the whole period of their involvement in the trial. So University of Stirling, have got expertise and qualitative methods. So uh, yeah, it really is a large team, but very, very strong team members from across the different collaborating institutions, I think, that were, were needed to make this all happen and to make it such a, a successful trial. I mean, we recruited the 600 women we we targeted and um, had really good retention and that, that women were still completing data collection for us at two years, which is, is a really diff- difficult thing to keep going, as you can imagine.
0: And what was your specific role in the project?
1: Well, I was the chief investigator of the trial, so I was really overseeing all the different parts, um, managing the trial unit, which we set up at Glasgow Caledonia University, being involved in the trial steering committees and the data monitoring committees, all the sort of independent committees that go alongside a trial of this size and communicate, communicating with the, the funding body. Obviously this was a, bit, uh, a very large and expensive trial, so a lot of governance surrounding it.
0: Mm-hmm. Why have you chosen to spend your career researching this area of health, Suzanne? That's
1: a very good question. <laughs> um, so my background was in maths and statistics, so really practice as, as a statistician, but always in the area of health. And when I took a job at Ayrshire Health Board back in uh, 1994, the, the health board were really interested in the problem of urinary incontinence. There was a huge amount of money, millions of pounds spent every year on providing incontinence pads for people living in Ayrshire and Arne so they set me to work on um, doing some research in, in this area and I just got my first grant in in that that sort of area of incontinence and how you measure outcomes for people with urinary incontinence and I just think I, I became really um, passionate about it, I think, and it just really got the, the bug. It's such a, I suppose, an under-researched area, um, and just, people t- talk about it being a, a Cinderella topic um, because it's, it's kind of forgotten about, but it's such a huge quality of life issue for people. You
0: find people have difficulty talking about the subject.
1: Yes, it is. It is still quite stigmatized. I think I've noticed over the twenty odd years that I've been working in this area that things have shifted, and people are more open to talking about it now. Um, I think things could still be could still be better, but the, the things are shifting slightly. I think, um, and as long as GPs, you know, are willing to to talk to women about this problem and take it seriously and refer on, then I think that will encourage women to come forward and to talk about these sorts of problems, which are really common.
0: Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about some of the research you've done at GCU, not just this project, but other explorations into the area?
1: We have done a number of trials in this sort of area. Um, some of them have been about another problem that women experience quite often along with unary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse. So these things are are usually connected, but um, prolapse is another common problem. And again, we were interested in this area of pelvic floor muscle training and how effective it could be for prolapse, because we know that it's effective for incontinence, but we weren't sure what the impact was for prolapse so that was another uh, two trials that we did that related to that topic which found that the exercises were effective and that they were something that women um, should try as a first line of treatment really before they think about for example going for surgery.
0: I know you've just finished this one so there's you're probably looking for a a bit of a a lie down and a rest but is there any upcoming (laughs) projects Suzanne anything coming up on the horizon?
1: Well, um, we, another trial that um, we are really probably going to be finishing off in the next six months is, again, women with pelvic organ prolapse. But um, the treatment we've been interested in in the Topsy trial is the um, a pessary device, which is a support device that women can wear internally to help support a prolapse. And this is used by lots of women, um, as a, an alternative to surgery. And it's normally uh, delivered in the hospital setting where women would have a pessary inserted and then they would come back every six months or so to have it changed and checked. But the question, the research question we've been answering is whether women could effectively do this at home um, and self-manage the pessary. So a trial of um, just under 400 women is, is just being completed where we've compared women having the pessary in, in hospital and um, followed up in hospital or self-managing. So that's going to be the next upcoming um, set of results we'll have, hopefully, to share with you next year.
0: Given everything you said, Suzanne, there about the urinary incontinence affecting one in every three women and it kind of life-changing effects on people, it really sounds like you're working your research embodies the university's mission for the common good.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's really... Patient-centred research, I think. Um, it's an important issue which not everybody is is you know, willing to look at. Um, so I think the fact that we are taking this important issue on is really important for for lots of women. And I'm kind of really proud to be involved in it and to um, be able to hopefully make a difference for so many
0: people. That's absolutely brilliant Suzanne, thank you very much for speaking to me today.
1: No problem, thanks Craig.
0: I'd also like to thank everyone for listening to the show and I hope you'll join us again soon when we'll be talking to another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening to us from and leave us a review while you're at it. Until then I've been Craig Telfer and this has been The Common Good Podcast.